0: Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast. My name is James Morris, one of the associate editors at the journal, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ravindran with me today, who has previously done a podcast with us a couple of years ago, and it's great to have him back um, talking about his recent paper published in the journal entitled Case of the Month, a Novel Way to Learn from Endoscopy-Related Patient Safety Incidents. Um, Dr. Avinjan is a JAG Clinical Fellow at St Marks and he has a particular interest in patient safety and simulation and I thought it'd be fantastic to talk to him today to learn about uh, some of the things that he's learned during his research which could impact on patient safety and improve our endoscopy practice. Dr. Avinjan, Vats, welcome to the podcast today, it's great to have you
1: with us. Yeah thanks for inviting me on, it's a pleasure to be back and um... Really excited to talk a bit about our research and what we're doing at JAG currently.
0: So um, Vats could you begin by uh, giving us perhaps uh, some background as to why it's important to be discussing patient safety in endoscopy?
1: Yeah sure, um, so safety in endoscopy has really kind of come to the fore over the past 20 years or so, um, particularly following on from kind of early audits and um, when we started to receive a lot of regarding performance data, particularly one landmark paper was the NCPOB report, Scoping Our Practice, which really highlighted um, kind of the mortality and morbidity associated with endoscopy at the time. So this kind of led on to driving up quality and safety within endoscopy. Um, and throughout this process of time, safety in endoscopy has largely been focused around procedural safety. So things such as adverse events around procedure or um, complications, as a result of the procedure with fairly hard outcomes, so kind of mortality rates, readmission rates, et cetera. Um, and now we're seeing a focus in terms of safety, not just within endoscopy, but within the wider NHS, uh, and looking at a reduction of what we define as patient safety incidents or PSIs. So these are kind of incidents that can or did lead to patient harm. And on their own, there their, are their own research field. You could write a whole PhD about them. Um, But the the safety work in endoscopy really follows what's happened before in terms of surgery and other healthcare uh, arenas. Um, We know that within endoscopy from audits and kind of um, data from services that incidents do happen, but we don't know the exact incidents of PSIs. There have been a couple of observational studies done which have really highlighted the impact of PSIs in terms of frequency and how much they occur during procedures. Uh, but the large majority don't actually have a direct immediate impact. Um, What we don't know is kind of the cumulative effects of these incidents together. So, you know, a combination of incidents causing a larger problem or error. Um, And I think safety with endoscopy, particularly in the past five to ten years, we've seen an increase in the demand, pressures and services, complexity of endoscopy, you know, uh, greater use of therapeutic endoscopy. And inevitably, safety is going to be a key aspects of this, particularly around PSIs. So I think we should now be looking at a a wider perspective on endoscopy safety, not just looking at the procedural safety, but looking at the whole service. Uh, I think that's where we're at at the moment with patient safety and endoscopy.
0: That's a really helpful introduction. Um, Thank you. So talking about patient safety incidents or PSIs, what would you say are the main domains or categories that they fall into that we see in endoscopy?
1: Yeah, so again, as I mentioned, endoscopy is kind of like um, following on from lots of other work that's been done. In a way, there's lots of templates for us research fellows to act upon because uh, a lot of the work's already been done. But essentially, uh, there are lots of ways to classify PSIs. But the way that most people will be familiar with is the WHO defined criteria. So the WHO defined criteria... Um, were developed as part of something called the ICPS, which is the International Classification of Patient Safety. So this is kind of overarching categories which incidents fall into, and then quite a significant number of subcategories. And these people be familiar with when they report an incident. These are the categories that can be used to pick on a drop-down box. And this is obviously good from an organisational viewpoint. Specifically within endoscopy, um, there can be difficulties in kind of attributing incidents to that framework. And that's, that led to kind of a few observational studies being done. One, uh, notable study being done by my predecessor, Dr. Ottomath at St. Mark's and that really identified from the ground up PSIs uh, within endoscopy from looking in, uh, and reporting what happens during the endoscopy itself. Um, so in there talking about Mamet's study kind of identifying over 100 um, incidents during over approximately 140 procedures. and these incidents are broken down into categories which probably are more familiar to endoscopy staff, so things such as oxygen monitoring, uh, time management distractions, technical skills, things such as sedation drug errors, histology, sampling errors, consent, etc. Uh, and these are actually some of the categories um, that we utilize within our paper just to highlight some of the incidents that are happening. And obviously some of the work that we're doing now builds on that through JAG um, and JAG are collaborating with the uh, NRLS, that's the National Reporting Learning System. So these are the kind of the database where incidents are reported, they go up to the NRLS and we have access to some of that data. So we're looking at that currently to see how uh, some of these incident categories can be expanded in terms of relevancy to endoscopy and particularly for learning.
0: That's really helpful. So you mentioned there about some structures I suppose are in place already and mm. how you can use those to identify um, some of the PSIs that are occurring. Could you expand a bit on that uh, just to just give us a bit, bit more detail about what processes and governance structures are already in place uh, particularly in the UK context uh, to uh, improve patient safety endoscopy and identify recurring patterns of error that might be occurring?
1: Yeah sure. So I guess, I mean, in terms of the NHS wider structure, I'm not probably going to go into the, the wider organisational structure of what we do with instance and uh, kind of the, the mechanisms, root cause analysis, et cetera. But just talking about endoscopy specifically, so you can, I guess, think about it across services, kind of governance structures, etc. can be outlined by what we define within JAG. So these are the standards which are kind of related to the global rating scale or GRS, which is... Essentially, a self um, reporting quality improvement tool and the accreditation standards. And within those standards, there's some guidance and definitions about kind of the structure around reporting, particularly safety. Um, and actually, recently, that guidance was slightly updated to incorporate some changes that we made uh, in terms of understanding safety a bit better. And largely within Industry, this talks a lot about adverse event monitoring through. Um, uh, clinical leads and kind of sharing that knowledge through endoscopy user groups or EUGs. Uh, they need to make sure that there is electronic reporting available which is now pretty much commonplace. Um, they need to identify kind of further inquiry if necessary for instance to uh, identify kind of based on things such as the nature, um, severity, frequency of incidents. Um, and actually quite recently trying to incorporate a safety lead within endoscopy. So kind of a a personal people who act as a bridge between endoscopy and local uh, kind of governance and local safety teams. Um, So that's kind of a broad structure that JAG outlines. And obviously within each service, there will be the service specific protocols. These are generally the local safety standards, um, something that people may be aware of, so NatSips and LOCSIPs. So these are the national and local safety standards for invasive procedures that each trust should have this. And this really outlines the importance of things such as checklists, audit, governance, uh, other governance processes, training, etc. within the safety framework. Um, so that's kind of the broad, I guess, structure from a, a governance perspective. Individually, services may do other things as well to kind of promote safety that sits within that framework but maybe specific to that service um you know sharing learning through training days and dedicated training etc uh and one of the interesting things that we are looking at and, and have developed as positive strategy is how to kind of share learning a bit better so what you imagine is you know lots of learning occurs individually at unit and service level but surprisingly not a lot of that learning is shared part of the reason of developing case month series was to try and uh, address that and combat that in, in some way although we are thinking about other ways of, of developing that kind of through um the way we report data and share data and of course that's, it, it,
0: that's going to be a focus of our discussion today and i'd love to come back to that about the idea hmm. of the case of the month and how that can be used to to, to learn within a team and uh, particularly from events that the team have, you know experienced firsthand and and to to take something positive from perhaps uh, something that has occurred exactly. um, uh, locally but before we do that i would just like to pick your brains or just ask about um a more established change in in our practice relating to safety endoscopy that's occurred over recent years which is the introduction of a checklist before our um, endoscopic procedures. Now, of course, that has been the WHO checklist is relatively established uh, in the surgical yeah. field, and and I really enjoyed reading the checklist manifesto by the by one of the pioneers of it over in the states. Having been a little bit sceptical to start with, and it was it was fascinating seeing the theory behind it, um, yeah. uh, and and the impact something relatively simple actually had in negating some of our um, innate sort of biases and cognitive biases in our decision making. Um could you perhaps just expand a little on on the impact it's had on endoscopy practice in this country and some of the mm. benefits that have been uh, seen through the introduction of an endoscopy checklist?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean the, the checklist is obviously something close to our hearts and St. Mark's, particularly with um I'm gonna quote her again now I mean she's gonna be disappointed I've said her name twice in this podcast, but essentially she did pave the way for a lot of the work that I'm doing so um, a shout out to none me but um, essentially you're right in terms of the checklist from the WHO and the surgical sphere have have really shown a dramatic improvement in things such as surgical mortality, surgical error etc and that was a a clear thing that needed to be introduced with endoscopy being a procedural specialty and obviously the checklist itself when it was introduced you know there is a paper in the front line previously about the implementation of this and how much engagement and kind of um, discipline it required to implement initially and you know from results of the previous census that we've done checklist use now is kind of over 95 96 percent if not 100 percent at the moment so obviously the implementation has has gone through and and the clear benefits of a checklist as you've outlined are are essentially a a kind of a a safety net uh, making kind of safety everyone's agenda, ensuring that the whole team are engaged and are aware of the plan uh, kind of during the procedure, as well as the points that need to be covered to ensure that error is minimized. Um, A lot of work I mentioned has been done within surgery, particularly looking at the effectiveness and impact of checklists. Uh, And within endoscopy, it's not really been done. We haven't really looked at a measure of um, how much a checklist improves Safety. Um, I guess you need to use. De- it depends what measure you use for safety. And there the obviously a wide range of measures you can use, um, but it's almost uh, irrelevant in a way. It's it's kind of a common sense intervention. You know, everyone's got a story about how things may have changed if certain things within the checklist weren't appreciated. You know, the missing uh, drug that wasn't necessarily mentioned on the kind of indication list, but clearly picked up during the checklist when we looked through the. Uh, Comorbidities and drug lists etc so there there are clear benefits to this uh, in terms of um, particularly team working within the the kind of procedural sphere. Um, That said checklists are not without kind of their own issues particularly now that everyone's used to the checklist there can be issues around um, kind of engagement and ongoing engagement particularly if you're doing a heavy list And you feel like you're saying the same things over and over again. And I really must stress that some of the PSIs we identify are through lack of engagement with the checklist. So it's really highlighting the importance of that as, as kind of a almost final safety net. And the checklist isn't the only thing that has to be done in terms of safety around the procedure. It all starts from, you know, even making the referral and this information you provide to the person vetting the referral right the way through to, you know, what happens in recovery. So it's all part of that kind of, Uh, kind of chain as it were.
0: That's really helpful. Um, It'd be great now just to move on to the main paper we want to discuss which is your case of the month series paper which I really enjoyed reading and I enjoyed it for several reasons. Uh, Very obviously grounded in cases and I think you could really see in it uh, a clear framework to learn uh, from error um, and how to embed that in a team. Um, and I liked the examples of real-life cases which really brought it home as to how that could be implemented. Um, and it led me to have a quick look on the JAG website. And you know it, it was interesting seeing the range of incidents that you know are reported there and used as learning incidents ranging from lost biopsy samples to overinflation of dilatation balloons, etc. And some of these of course are discussed in the paper. Um, could you, could you outline for us a constructive approach of how to take an incident like this that occurs in our department and use it
1: to produce a useful learning outcome? I think in terms of what I mentioned previously with um, incidents being identified and kind of a clinical lead or, or nurse lead, um, kind of taking these and transforming them into a learning um, tool can be quite difficult. You know, the, the focus is obviously on trying to prevent issues happening again and trying to go through the governance steps but the importance of learning cannot be uh, overstated it's um, what we've identified just from even writing these and engaging with people when when they write them is how much of a an important process it is so actually picking apart the key aspects within the case and then using kind of a framework to identify the instance useful for then generating learning points rather than just thinking about well, what can we learn just by reading the case so having a systematic approach I think is important um, which I, I can mention in a moment but a lot of what we've developed in terms of case of the month has been based on what's been done in other specialties particularly in radiology um, and they actually have a magazine or publication based on these cases where you go through each case and identify the learning points and things so it has been really fruitful in that specialty and we hope that we can replicate it in ours um and the other thing to say is that this isn't just geared towards the clinicians but it's geared towards kind know everyone in the department so the way it's written the way it's developed has involved kind of a multidisciplinary approach you know when we talk about particularly around uh, an incident and potentially complication we tend to medicalize it quite a lot and actually a lot of the time there are the subtle nuances though, of the non-technical aspects, which we don't often um, see straight away, which requires input from other team members, etc., And also the inclusion potentially of patients in this. And actually one of the cases that we used in the paper was um, developed with, a, with collaboration from a patient.
0: Talk us through the main steps that would form the sort of backbone of a, of a case of the month. And could you perhaps illustrate it with maybe one of the cases in the paper
1: yeah sure so i mean in the in the paper and i think in figure one there's kind of a diagram a diagrammatic overview of um what we do so kind of uh, identifying the case summary so you know each case will have its relevant learning points but particularly a single case or group of cases can be used to demonstrate a learning points particularly if similar things are happening and really the next step is it takes a bit of time but it is really identifying what the individual incidents were trying to categorize these and in cases stratify them we've done it in, for the purpose of the paper to stratify them to show you know the range of incidents that can occur and actually in some of the newer cases we're writing we're taking a different approach where we're actually looking at the kind of contributing incidents and factors that lead up to uh, incidents or contribute to incidents just to give people an overview Schematically of how things kind of intercorrelate. Things so that identification of um, instance you can use whatever framework you want to use. I mean, we the, the framework we used in the paper is, is very simple, based on those instant categories, and they quite fit quite nicely into instant categories. Um, and then picking apart each instance: so what happened? Were there any other factors that contributed to each incident, and where did they fit? Kind of this categorization system. We can also stratify them, uh, kind of into minor, moderate, or severe risk based on the, you know, potential patient harm. Um, we don't go into too much detail about kind of risk likelihood ratios and uh, matrices and things, simply because we're limiting this just to learning and not actually an instant investigation. Um, and then from each of these incidents, you can try and pick apart up up, um, learning points. So, I mean, very simply, one of the cases I think was around uh, uh, like a bile duct injury. Um, And this essentially revolved around a case where they were trying to dilate the balloon within the common bile ducts and a new team member came in halfway during the procedure and there was overinflation balloon which led to bile duct injury. And actually when you think about the individual instance, so there was an overinflation balloon, um, which was the key incident which led to the complication, but also incidents such as handover being incomplete uh, potentially incomplete instruction between the endoscopist and the assistant, and a contributing factor may be a change in the situational awareness because of the new team member. And so you develop learning around those points. So things such as the technical side, so knowing that balloons with two stages might have inherent risk, you might have a risk of overinflating. So considering using, you know, a fixed diameter syringe or something like that. Um, But a lot is really around what we do each day, every day, it's around teamwork and communication, particularly around the communication around the handover, skill set as a person coming in, um, do they know what they're doing and and know what needs to be done? And also group situational awareness. So if things change in the environment, recognising this, acknowledging it and sharing it it, between each other. So learning points really are around that and, and highlighting that. And some of those things can then be disseminated into other learning types. You can talk about this in a training session, particularly if you're learning to use a balloon and talking about how you might communicate um, what, you, what you do when you inflate the balloon, for example, or talking about it doing an EEG meeting and maybe outline some of the things that you can do to improve communication, things, techniques, for example, close communication comes to mind.
0: There are numerous benefits you can immediately see coming from that, can't you? So you've got this clear framework, the case summary, identifying, categorising, stratification of each particular safety instance within the case, of which, as you said, there may be numerous um, coming out of uh, one particular complication, for example, um, and then from each of those learning points and disseminating that. And there's obviously the immediate benefits of trying to make sure it doesn't happen again uh, and improving practice in the department. But also when you step back, you realize the complexity of a system and what is going on that leads to an error. And it's the old sort of Swiss cheese model, et cetera. But Mm. it's very helpful, isn't it? And I think I found it helpful myself when I've been involved in SI investigations and that sort of Mm. thing, where you realize um, that incidents and errors occur in a complex system and there are many factors leading into that which you can learn from but I wonder if that also has the benefit of of reducing you know fear in a department of reporting incidents and 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 bringing them to the surface and creates more of a culture of openness rather than suppressing.
1: Yeah sure I think even when you look at the literature around safety reporting and and kind of hesitancy to safety reporting you know this is outside of endoscopy there's a lot around um reasons for that particularly feeling that it won't go anywhere feeling that uh, kind of guilt or blame associated with it etc and i think particularly now the focus is obviously trying to promote learning and not attributing blame and what we're discussing here this kind of learning from instant and developing uh, learning points from essentially inverted brackets what went wrong is uh, kind of the safety one approach that kind of how do we find out what happened, what went wrong, so we can improve things next time and learn from things. And as you mentioned a bit about culture, so it is um, developing a, a safety culture, which to be honest, occurs at different levels. It doesn't just occur at the workforce level, but it's all ingrained into the department, the organisation, etc. So it requires engagement at all, at all levels and particularly leadership. So, you know, if you have an engaged nurse colleague, clinical leader within your department, who's not afraid to kind of discuss things in an open manner without kind of pointing the finger. That's obviously a very good step, but even better is if your organization is uh, kind of geared towards that and, and we're obviously seeing that more and more, um, particularly in what we've described a bit earlier through patient safety leads, um, patient safety champions, been around for a while and also leads within other departments and kind of collaboration between other departments uh, is important. I think the key is to try and bring learning out of our silos. We we traditionally learn in silos of different kind of professions etc and trying to draw it all in together uh, may be beneficial. Some of the the best learning experiences I certainly have had have been learning experiences with other people from other specialties and other professions, group learning um, and that can be quite powerful.
0: and we can see how perhaps using case of the month could be a, a really pragmatic focus uh, forum to achieving that.
1: Yeah, it can act as a kind of um, platform to build yeah. upon. You know, the learning points there are just learning points that have been developed by people who write the cases and people who look at the um, kind of instance stratification and things, but there can be all sorts of things that derive from that because people may find familiarity in reading cases for example that might happen at in my unit but we did this Um, and actually is trying to kind of draw learning across different services and units and not just keep it within your unit for example and and, you know things that you experience at your place uh, your units may be relevant to what I do at my unit for example. Yeah
0: and that different perspective as you say will help shed a different light on an incident which may Broaden out the learning for everyone. Yeah, that's a really helpful point. Um, Fats, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I really enjoyed talking to you. And and I thought the paper was fantastic. And anyone who's listening, I'd really urge you to read it. It would be a a, a fantastic thing to implement in your department if you want to uh, improve the culture of safety and improve the outcomes for patients in your units. Um, we need to draw this discussion to a close. Um, it'd be great just to hear maybe where you think the future direction is of patient safety and endoscopy in the UK and is there, there any new developments or um, uh, anything like that on the horizon that you see uh, coming for
1: Yeah you know the way we look at safety is always um, going to be important within endoscopy and JAG particularly as part of the safety strategy of looking at different aspects of things around incident reporting um, and developing that idea of, you know some of why research work and research work done through JAG is looking at aspects of safety culture within endoscopy which we haven't looked at before we've just mentioned briefly a bit around kind of patient reporting itself so how, how can we improve the way we, we report and um, understand what's happening in terms of instance so patient reporting is another aspect of that and a huge aspect to safety is actually from within training and obviously training in endoscopy has changed quite significantly over the past year or so and it's due to change even more Um, and we're we're developing platforms for learning in terms of e-learning simulation etc which will all be geared towards um, not just improving technical skill but also non-technical skills which we know play a huge part in performance, team performance and safety. Um, So there's a lot, there is a lot happening, there's lots to do um, and hopefully it will all make a difference and before we go I do want to uh, kind of an ask for anyone who is interested in the work that we're doing and particularly around case of the month and feels that like they want to contribute and maybe has a case etc then feel free to email us at JAG. Um, you know we publish early anonymized cases and we you know we're, we're um, very happy to receive cases and actually at the moment we are running a competition um, for, for cases from services so keep an eye out on the JAG website and Twitter. Right, and
0: we'll try and put a link to both your paper and to the case of the month website in the podcast notes, so Brilliant. people do click through to that. Um, well, Dr. Ravindra, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been great talking to you, and um, thanks to those who are listening. Um, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, if you did, please rate us on your podcast provider. It helps other people find the podcast. Um, and do check out um, uh, the papers that we've discussed um, in the journal. Um, and I'll put a link to previous papers from, uh, from Dr. Avinjian and others uh, linked to patient safety endoscopy that they've published in recent years. Uh, but that's what we've got time for today and uh, tune in next month for our next episode. Bye for now.